This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Our panel discussion, before we go to a tea break uh, later this morning, is on perspectives from the coalface, shifting from population to personal health care. Now, this panel discussion will provide perspectives from the coalface about how personalised medicine and new technologies are changing practice and decision-making. And the presenters include a consumer representative, a clinician, and hospital pharmacists. So I'm just going to join them to introduce them to you directly. Now, each of our panellists has been asked to give a short overview of the topic first for five minutes or so before we go into discussion and then take uh, discussion uh, and questions from you and comments from you as well. So I'll start off by introducing our uh, panellists. Dr Matthew Anstey, my far right here, is an intensive care physician at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth. He is the current chair of the advisory group for Choosing Wisely Australia and clinical lead for Choosing Wisely projects at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, perfect. Correct, terrific. Um, Leanne Wells. Leanne is CEO of the Consumer Health Forum. Uh, she has more than 25 years' experience as a health service executive within government and with national and state NGOs, including a CEO of the ACT Medicare Local, which has since changed its name. And Professor Michael Dooley. Michael holds a joint appointment as Director of Pharmacy at Alfred Health and Professor of Clinical Pharmacy at the Centre for Medicine Use and Safety at Monash University in Melbourne. He's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine at Monash University and is current president of the Society of Hospital Pharmacists of Australia. Would you please make them all welcome? <laughs> now, as I said, each, uh, each of our panellists will speak, uh, give their overview of the topic first and foremost. And Michael, I believe we shall start with you. Uh, look, thanks for the introduction. It's great to talk today. And, and I, was, I was just listening to Keith and, and um, giving it some perspective about what I was going to say because I didn't know what Keith was going to say. And, and I think some of the things are really important around data and information. And, and I think the issue about competing expectations, which I think is a real challenge for us at the coalface at the moment, the flow of information and empowering the individual, empowering persons to be involved in, in I suppose, the, the digital world that's coming before us. So what I um, wanted to do really is talk about some of the things that are happening today, but also reflect on what's happened in the past. Um, I want to balance expectations because one of the challenges we have is that um, everyone thinks everything's going to happen very, very soon. Uh, and that's not necessarily going to be the case. Uh, and we need to focus on the individual person. We need to focus on the patient. And sometimes I think in regards to how we're progressing in this digital age is sometimes it may be getting missed. And the most important thing is we need smart humans using smart technology, not dumb humans using dumb technology, um, which sometimes can occur. So 18 years ago, I was um, presented with this slide. This is a slide I used 18 years ago in a presentation, because I was thinking about what I should talk about. And this was a picture, a slide uh, comment made by the uh, Chief Information Officer. At that time, you were the um, head of IT. Now you're a Chief Information Officer. 
Um, but he was very keen and thought that the nurses would like to wear this technology and was adamant that this is what we should be doing. And this was uh, uh, 18 years ago. Uh, then, so 16 years ago, I was uh, given a picture of a pen. And again, this Keith put up a pen, and this is a pen, it's a big pen. And this was waved to me by Max Wolf, who was a haematologist. And I was the director of pharmacy at the Peter McCallum Cancer Institute at that time. And he said, whatever you implement, Michael, because we just got a grant to implement electronic prescribing. He said, whatever you do, Michael, it's got to be um, as easy as this. And I said to Max, well, it doesn't have to be easier than this, Max. It's got to be better than this. But his perspective was it's got to be as quick as this and not stop him doing what he wanted to do. And again, perspectives. So today, all the future, and the, and the, and the, the, the conference um, title is uh, The Future Is Now, and I, it's, it's an intriguing title. This is, um, for a lot of you will know, there's a Gardner um, um, flow of uh, um, expectations around healthcare, and it sort of moves from the left to the right. It's sort of like um, going to a conference plenary. You know, you get really, really excited about it, and maybe you get disillusioned in the middle. Uh, but in this, in this cycle is the um, adoption of technology or the, the hype that occurs around technology. And there is an incredible amount of hype that we see at the coalface every single day about technology. Um, what I'm going to touch on very briefly is this tiny little one that you won't be able to read, but this is electronic health records. And at my institution, the Alfred, we're implementing CERN and we're doing that in October, and it is consuming everything. Not some things, it's consuming everything. And will consume most of our attention for quite a period of time. There has been a large adoption of electronic health records overseas. But the benefits of that haven't been seen yet. The, the adoption of electronic health records in the United States after the um, uh, injection of billions of dollars, the actual impact on patient care is yet to be demonstrated. And most likely the adoption and the implementation will take five to 10 years. Fantastic building block but it is a building block, and it is just an electronic health record. So, what else? And this is, I think, what, what I think is the most important thing we need to be thinking going forward um, about what we do and about personalised medicine. This is um, a, uh, um, a photo that got sent to me last week, and a patient brought back their medications, and this is how they personalise their medications, and this is the National Medicine Symposium, so I thought I would put a focus on meds. And they thought, oh my God, this is awful. That was their perspective on the treatment they had been given. Now the question is, is the adoption of technology that we're doing and implementing in hospitals and elsewhere at the present moment going to change this in any great way? Are we going to separate the individual clinician from the patient? Is there going to be a computer in between the patient and those providing the care? Is all these things we're going to do actually change that outcome that we see? Now, sure, a steroid is a steroid, and we know the toxicities and side effects of steroids. But in the management of this patient, do we understand their perception on their treatment? And again, this is the other one, lorazepam. Addictive. <laughs> you can read it. So what is, what is the systems we're implementing today going to make difference to this patient who's receiving care? Is our care going to be better in the digital world for this patient or not? And I think that's the challenge we have to do, and I think that's the thing we should focus on while we have a discussion. So I think we have to balance expectations. And there's an awful lot of hype, and this is thinking that we're going to have data, and that data is going to revolutionise care and make the treatment of that patient better. I think that still remains to be seen, and I think the challenges are that those who fund us and those who make decisions at the top think that's going to happen immediately, and that may not happen for five years or 10 years. 
We have to focus on the individual. We have to put smart humans with smart technology and focus on that. And I think the issue around leadership is important. We have to be really good at adopting and have the capacity to implement technology. But what's probably more important is putting in the leadership that's required to actually make that change. And that leadership needs to be not just individuals in the room here, but giving leadership to all the individuals who practice. And as Keith said, being able to empower the person who understands the care to make the systems better. There's five steps there that come from adoption of technology, and I think they're really important. That people step in and get involved, they step up, they step aside when they don't need to be involved. Uh, they step narrowly on those areas that really need the difference to be made, and more importantly, step forward. And I hope this just gives you a little bit of perspective from the coalface um, and thinking that what we need to do is adopt technology, but do that in a way that actually makes an impact and not necessarily believe that's going to happen tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I just wonder if that gives me permission to send uh, medication back to my doctor saying nasty shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or else I want more. Um, that's fascinating. Leanne, your Thank overview. You. Thanks, Virginia. Look, I've just got um, five main points of observation, I suppose, from a consumer perspective that I wanted to make on this, this broad topic. The first one is pretty obvious, I guess. We've been talking about that. Uh, Keith drew that to our attention very nicely, that disruption is happening now and it's accelerating. Um, you know, the rate of new medicines, the rate of new therapies coming, becoming available is breathtaking, really, and, and it's shifting us from conditions previously viewed as incurable or only subject to ineffective treatments to ones that can be cured and treated. So that's pretty exciting um, from a consumer perspective. But beyond new therapies, new medications, um, artificial intelligence, all of the things that are happening in this space, I think we've heard it's hard for health professionals to keep up with that pace of change let alone consumers keeping up with that and being uh, able to function as informed consumers exercising choice and control over their healthcare in that context. And that's in an environment where healthcare has lagged behind other sectors. So imagine um, what we might be facing if this, and when and if this, this um, rate of technological innovation in health does, does accelerate. But we can't ignore this disruption. The good thing, as I said, is we are getting access to attainable new treatments. But in that context, we all, policymakers, as Virginia said, clinicians, patients, need to embrace and manage that change. So the personalisation of medicine with genomics and precision medicine, developing new therapies increasingly designed for the individual to target disease in a way that really works for them, can dramatically improve quality of life. Now, that, that's, that's monumental. That's, that's life-changing for so many people. But it also makes us look at treatment options in totally different ways. And in some ways, it's the ultimate expression of consumer-centred care, of consumer choice and control. And we're not only seeing disruption in medicines and therapies, we're also seeing it, um, and, and you know, the, the triple aim or the quadruple aim comes into play here. We're also seeing the prospect of disruption in the way systems of care are organised, digitally enabled models of care, debates about how coordinated care could be differently funded and delivered. So embracing change is a real theme for me. 
And moving to tailored and personalised medicines will need more time and effort to ensure people understand before their treatment starts what they need to do to get the most value out of their treatment. Because we're looking at uh, changes or advents in the way medicines are delivered. We've got biological medicines now, so we're moving from people taking pills to injections. So they have to new, learn new ways and new skills like safe storage and new behaviours in that context. So new medicines, new therapies, new models of care means that the support and the information also has to become more individualised and we need to be thinking about how we do that um, from a quality, safety, medicines, therapy, compliance, adherence point of view. So a reliance on fact sheets, handouts, your more standard, uh, consumer medicines information type approaches that we've had a traditionally will, will need to be personalised and changed. I think the other point, probably again a bit obvious, but healthcare has always been personalised. We're talking about personalised medicine, but healthcare has always been personal. And it's worth remembering that. People will always approach a treatment, a medicine or a care plan with that lens. They'll be asking questions when they send in front of their doctor like, how will it help me? What are the costs going to be? What are the side effects? Will it make me feel better? What if it doesn't work? Those sort of really deep personal questions about am I going to get a better outcome are always what's in the consumer's mind. And even when there is a population health impact or a system benefit, the lens is still typically personal. You get your child immunised to protect them. You lose weight for your own benefit largely, not because you've got you know, the, benef the downstream benefits to the system in mind that you know, if, we, if we've got less obese people in the population, we're going to have less demands on healthcare costs downstream. But I think in terms of where consumers are sitting in the modern consumer, if I can use that term, consumer expectations are changing. We did you know, one small illustration of that is some joint research we just finished with um, the support of NPS Medicine Wise around the consumer health data journey. And what did that tell us? That told us that people resoundingly wanted um, control and they wanted to exercise informed consent about how data about their health is used. And we're also seeing consumers expecting to be um, engaged and more entrenched as advisors as leaders in their own right. I'll talk a bit more about leadership in a moment. The other point is we can't always have what we want. New medicines, new therapies, often because they are developmental, they are innovative drugs, we all know they come at a cost. But the average person on the street really doesn't understand or care about the intricacies of decision making um, about how and why and at what cost drugs are brought to the market. They, they just want access to them. Um, the savvier consumer and the consumers that we work with at the Healthcare Consumer Forum um, are involved in some of those decision-making processes, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, for example. But that's all the more reason to work with uh, a skilled uh, consumer advocate leader who can understand policy, who can hold their own in health technology assessment discussions and contribute to decision making at that level to get the best outcome for the community. So my take out message to you today is pretty simple. 
Disruption is with us, we know that, due to technology and, and medical advances. But it can be leveraged all the more in the community's interests, we would say, if we use the insights of consumers to reimagine new clinical innovations and services. And if we also take time and care to support consumers to be leaders, to sit at the table, to sit at those, those, those discussions that determine policy that shape new services on a peer footing with clinicians and other decision makers. I think when we combine that, that all those factors, um, technology, medical advances and um, the insights of consumers and clinicians working together, close to the point of care delivery, as Keith said, then we can really disrupt and innovate in a very positive way. I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Leanne, very much indeed. Now for the clinician's perspective, Matthew. So I'm going to have the courage to fail, so let's see how this works. Um, I'm going to embrace some technology. So Hugh, can you put that up? Great. So if you've got a mobile device, can you get it out and put up this URL, www.zetings.com forward slash Dr. Matt. And this might illustrate a couple of points about technology. One, this could go fantastically. Two, it could fail dismally. And we all know what that's like when the electronic records in your hospital fails. Um, the reason for illustrating this is one of the things about technology is it actually gets us opinions from hopefully all of you in the room. So we can actually get a sense of who we're talking to and what everybody thinks. Uh, so I'm going to talk about a couple of things here. Um, <coughs> always a plug for Choosing Wisely Australia, discussion about reducing low-value tests and procedures. But the two examples I'm going to give are basically responding to problems identified by clinicians. So I have no financial interest in the things that I'm going to show. Um, and there's a 50-50 gender split um, on what I'm going to show as well, just, just on that, on the two founders. Uh, so uh, this has all worked out so, so far. Okay, <laughs> thinking about the last time, you as a person went to see a doctor, you were given medications. How well did you actually understand the instructions you were given when you left? Great explanation, understood everything. Pretty good, not too bad, got some of it. Couldn't understand a thing and had to go back or call them again. So this is obviously a highly health literate audience, so hopefully most of you got it. Mm. So this is interesting. Mm. You, know, you are all very educated health professionals, and you didn't all get everything. Um, so this is um, an illustration of sometimes things arise in your clinical practice, a problem, that you can think about what could be the potential solution to this. Um, so one of my colleagues has um, got this startup, which is called What the Doctor Said. So essentially, the first iteration of this is the people who go to the emergency department discharged on medications. Stressful sort of environment, uh, they're often in pain, they go home. What she's set up is, rather than having an app or anything, people get text um, discharge instructions with pictograms, so um, it's easily um, understandable by people of different health literacy. Um, and it's sent to their mobile phone, so it's available, they don't have to download anything, and they've got those instructions to feed back to later. 
So I think this um, is uh, a problem that we often don't understand what we're told by doctors, even when we're highly health literate. In my role as a clinician in the intensive care unit, we often have family meetings and the research shows that even when we sit down and try and explain everything as well as possible, only half of the families ever understood what was going on. The second problem um, that I'm going to illustrate is um, thinking about yourself. You've been to see a doctor and they said, oh, you went to a different pathology provider and I don't have their results. Or you've seen the specialist and your GP hasn't sent through the results. Or you've gone to the hospital and they don't have your specialist results. So how often does this happen to you? So yesterday at the Choosing Wisely meeting, Julia McCrossan was saying that when she goes to appointments, she photocopies five copies of her patient um, record so that she can hand out to different people because she knows no one will have a copy of her results. And this is an issue um, that is actually quite frequent because of different systems collecting results, not talking to each other, and also partly because of privacy concerns about how those systems work to each other. Um, so, the guy who set this up is a gastroenterologist in Perth, and there was a quite high-profile case of a young guy who died after getting a medicine where he wasn't treat, uh, tested for the enzyme, uh, genetic enzyme defect that he had, and he had a complication from that. And as a consequence, he thought, why is it that none of our systems talk to each other? If we had those blood results, then potentially we could avoid these issues. And so it looks to compile um, results from multiple providers across the systems. It allows uh, anyone to access it and then look at patient data across different things. To re reduce the duplication of testing, which we know is a key element in waste in our systems. So there are probably other examples out there of, um, of the future, but I, I wanted to sort of point out that it, technology is useful if it's responding to a pure problem rather than just technology for technology's sake. And one of the things about technology um, that it can offer is, in the US, in Boston, there's the Open Notes Project, which is where patients can access their own results, medical records, what the doctors said in real time. Anywhere. That, the idea behind this is if you understand what the doctor's saying and you see your results, you'll be more uh, involved in your medical care as a result. So that looks great. On the other side, we heard a little bit before about the uh, demands on providers, and this paper down the bottom, they estimated that 55% of the day of a clinician was spent in front of a computer doing EMR stuff. So that, and they actually worked out that that was less time in front of the patient than it was before. So workflow and incorporating those things into our life is really important. So we need to respond to problems as we move forward. Um, I'll sit down. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. No, fascinating. Fascinating, and thank you for those questions and some very interesting answers there. Very interesting answers. Um, I, I also have a number of questions, and I know you do too, but first, uh, just a bit of discussion uh, among the panellists. Um, advances in health technology uh, make it easier for a consumer to, of course, self-diagnose. I love Dr Google. I use her all the time. And when she doesn't give me the answers I want, I go and look somewhere else. Now, how 
how much of a problem is this? We talk about the terrific advances in technology, but it also empowers a consumer more in a way that can be negative or dangerous. Is that an issue? Well, I mean, I, th I think it's good. I, I think the more that, that individuals can be empowered in their own care, the better. It's a, it's a matter of how can we point them in the right direction in the system to making sure they're going to the right sources of information and having those conversations. And I think being open to it, so that when someone comes and has a chat and they come with, you know, 30 pages of something that's printed out, um, or sometimes we'll just hold on to that until they've got your opinion and then yes. bring the 30 pages out. I, I think we have to be open and, and transparent and, and be supportive of it. I think it's good. You don't think it frustrates the process, though? Uh, it can, but, but I think we have to... Sometimes, of course, but, but I think it's a good thing. Overall, it's, it's, a, it's a much better thing for people to be empowered as part of their care and, and to seek information and to, to um, seek that knowledge and do that in a way that suits them. Some will want to seek it and do it in a lot of detail. Some won't look at all. So uh, it's there. It's, it's an opportunity for the individual to, to do it their way. And I think anything that does that is good. And we need to, clinicians and health practitioners need to be open for that and not be scared of that. When talking about patient care, um, and again, I say this as a consumer, uh, I'm very conscious of the time factor involved in dealing with a health professional. I know I pay my lawyer by the six minute uh, block, I know I pay my accountant by the short block, but with a healthcare professional, I'm extremely conscious of not wasting their time because they always seem to be in a hurry. Is that a problem too? Because again, um, perhaps there is more pressure on them to not only meet demand, but to be feeding information into digital systems? I might comment on that. I mean, I think, look, yes, I mean, we all know that, um, you know, the way our system is funded around fee-for-service, you know, encourages, you know, what some might argue is throughput medicine. But I think if we want to focus on the relational aspects of the, the doctor-patient, um, you know, um, uh, contact, I suppose, that, that's, the more a patient has access to trusted information um, and the more they're engaged in discussion with their doctor along the lines of the choosing wisely five questions or along the lines of some questions um, that they've done their own research around that pertain to their own condition, then the more active they are, the more engaged they are in their care, the more likely they're, they're, they're the more likely and open they are to be to follow through on a care plan. So we talk about the notion of an activated patient and I think patient mm. activation and the importance that trusted information um, comes into play there actually makes for a more effective um, and efficient use of that finite time that, that a clinician has. Mm. I might add to that, and I would say that if a patient turns up and has a list of questions, you're like, great, mm. that's where we go. We, mm. we're already, we, don't have, we can get away with the chit chat, we can get right down to the issues, and it's actually quite time efficient. You know what they want, mm. you can respond to what they need. Um, a lot of clinical consultations are sort of working around getting to the questions at the heart mm. of the matter. Okay. We've talked a lot or heard a lot this morning about the rapid, uh, the, well, the pace of change, but the enormous change that uh, the, the health industry is grappling with. Is it keeping up with the pace of change, though? I think the, the fundamental problem at the moment is, is change management. 
it's not so much about the technology and how it's, it's about change. It's about how do you implement a new system and how do you restructure and reorganise the organisation. It tends to be you implement a new system, an mm -hmm. EHR, and you have to redesign the hospital around it. You know, it's come off a, you know, the corporate um, programs. And, and I think the issue is change management and empowering individuals to redesign care and use things like the EMR as a tool rather than what tends to be the approach is we're implementing something that's going to fix everything uh, and therefore and deal with the practice around the periphery, around the edges of that. So I, I think that's the, the biggest issue is change management and doing that in an effective and appropriate way and engaging with the clinicians and, and patients in the redesign of care that has to occur, not the implementation of a, of a system. Is that change management being embraced, though, in, in, in a way that is, is understanding that change is constant rather than we're going to fix the system and then we'll be done? Look, look I think we're working in complex environments, you know, and, and so people are used to change. I think, I think people in, in the clinical environment are, are used to change um, and uh, are very adaptive to that. Um, I just don't... I think there's over-expectation on, on clinicians to um, adapt to major digital change, and there's, over, there's expe expectations are too high about how that's going to impact on care. Uh, and, and I think there's the, the issue of burden on clinicians, mm. um, and feeding the, the beast of EMRs and such is, is, is a real problem that is going to, um, I think, um, get in the way of good care and good practice into the future that we've really got to be aware of. Well, Matthew, from a clinician's perspective, you know, achieving the quality use of, of, of health technologies, um, do clinicians and health professionals at the coalface, what, 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 what do they need most that they don't have at the moment? I think Australia is actually pretty diverse. So um, I went overseas for a while and then came back to the hospital I work at and was surprised to find that it's all paper still. So the, we're, you know, we're even behind the fax machine. Um, and yet we have all our labs and all radiology statewide is all computerised. So we have an excellent part of our system and then the other part's completely paper. Um, and so I think there are a lot of simple things that still need to come but are often very expensive. And the current health environment where budgets are consuming a lot of state um, attention spending money on these technologies and doing it properly is not always high priority, I think, when they're trying to get through the business as usual. Um, I think we, we will get there and then once we get there, everybody will be much easier. But um, like in WA, there's one hospital that's completely digital, uh, one that will be completely digital and all the rest is sort of a mixture. Mm. Uh, anyone who has a question, please, you're most welcome to, uh, to take to the microphone and we'll throw over to you. And we do have um, a bit of time for questions. It, it's interesting to hear that you say that people are used to change, and yet, as human beings, we are somewhat resistant to change, I think, particularly when first encountering a new system. I, I'll just give an example myself of many years ago working in a newsroom where we used to keep all news items clipped and in files and then we got a new boss who came in, took one look at these old files and said, we're going to chuck them all. And we all went into a panic and almost went on strike, um, but he wanted everything to go online, which of course was the right thing to do. But we were used to using, I'm going back 25 years, we were used to using files and the idea of getting rid of the filing system and also the people that did 
that work uh, was just too, too, too much to take on. It was almost too much to bear at the time. Um, it does take a lot of cajoling, does it not, to encourage people, um, practitioners, to embrace new systems and keep embracing them? Look, I think it comes down to if the clinician thinks it's going to result in better care and they believe it, then they're very responsive to the change. And you see that, you see that when, um, you know, if you work in a big, cute hospital, there's a, you know, a major event that occurs. That's the system turns on and there's change that occurs very, very quickly, very, very quickly um, and in very innovative ways. It's, but you need the clinician or whoever it is to actually see that that's going to impact on the care that they provide or the care they get. The issue about change becomes a problem when there's a change that has to occur and the individual doesn't see how that's going to impact on care or impact on the patient, and then there's resistance. So you have to tie the two together, tying the digital change to the improvement in care. And mm. I think if you do that, mm. then the systems are there to, to result in change. Mm. It's when you don't have that connection. Mm. And I suppose that's where I'm So it's a matter from. of telling the full story. And seeing the, seeing the benefit, mm. and not seeing the benefit in an outcome in five or ten years' time, but seeing a benefit now. And I think mm. that's the key bit, is how do we implement these technologies and systems that result in an impact and a change and better care today, mm. rather than in five or ten years' time. Indeed. We have a question here. Thanks very much. Uh, Adam Chapman, Manager of Cancer Services in the Victorian Department of Health. Um, I think if if we've seen anything over the last 20 years, uh, and if we look back at 70s or 80s science fiction movies, we can see that we, we just can't predict the future. Nobody predicted the iPhone. Uh, and I, thinking of that photo that you put up, Michael, of the, uh, the headsets, um, just goes to show how, how wrong I think we can be about getting these things right. Um, I know of significant investment that's been put into uh, telehealth, but I also know there's a, a many doctors out there who are quite happy using Skype. It's portable, it's convenient for them. Uh, I really liked uh, the, um, the slide you put up, Matt, about what the doctor said. Uh, you know, there's, there's a light and very simple application that can be used for patients. And I wonder whether, you know, do we have this significant investment, which is for the last 20 years or more we've been talking about with EMRs, is that, a, is that a dinosaur? Are we putting our eggs in the wrong basket? Can we predict that that's really going to be where things are going? Or do we, have a, do we have a best in bread no matter what we do? We have the significant investment in EMRs. We also have these light, agile technologies that are coming through that may be easier for patients to use, may be more responsive to what the, the clinical sector doctors would like. And how do we see this playing out? Can we predict it? Indeed, can we predict it and can we uh, work or go forward with uh, no fear of failure and invest fail and move on quickly. That speed that, uh, that Keith was speaking about earlier too is important. Matthew. I might have a comment back. Um, I think the early adopters are often not the one who ends up winning. So if, if you think about the people who did the EMRs first, they ended up with quite clunky systems and probably cloud-based computing systems is where things will end up going, agile, portable, accessible across um, lots of different places. Um, but we can't really predict what's going to happen, but I think um, incremental evolution of things is probably what we should be looking for and what works and what doesn't work. Um, I, I like to sort of think about my clinical world and sort of the changing needle of what we're able to do, what wasn't possible 20 years ago and what is possible now. 
And if you thought about the things that we tried, we're doing now, back then you would have thought you were crazy, it was a waste of time, it's not going to make any benefit. And now we do that as a routine. Um, I think the same with technologies in sort of digital landscapes is what's happening is changing very fast. Take what works and keep moving forward, but be quite critical about is this improving my workflow? Is this giving patients better care? Or am I sitting in front of a computer all the time? Mm. Leanne, you wanted to add to that? Look, I think I'd, I'd come back to the point about change management and needing to take an improvement focus. I mean, we've got to start somewhere with electronic medical records. We've got to start somewhere with my health record. And, um, you know, the technology is not the end in itself, but but the, you know, the joined up information, you know, overcoming from a patient's perspective, the Julie scenario where she's going from specialist to specialist with photocopied copies of her own notes. In this modern day and age, no patient should have to do that. We should have the digital platforms that enable us to do that. If my health record at the national level is not the platform, let's evolve it, let's, let's improve it, but let's start with something. You know, we've got to, got to get beyond the paper age. Can I just ask you, from a, the consumer's perspective, uh, do you think consumers have an expectation that this, this is the way it should be, that, they, that they, it shouldn't be an issue of privacy stopping one health professional having access to another health professional's results on you, that uh, consumers expect it to Look, be I, I think I think that's exactly right. I think for people with complex chronic conditions that have a lot of people involved in their care, they often don't think about what's going on behind the scenes. They they make assumptions that that you know the doctor's talking to the nurse, that the mm. hospital pharmacist mm. talking to the GP. They you know a lot of people just make that assumption uh, that that care has been connected up mm. um, when we know it isn't. Mm. So it does come down to utility and it does come down to change and it comes down to providers and patients being the, the mm. being the. Um, demand drivers of making mm. these things work. Indeed. Uh, we'll take one last question just uh, from you, sir. Yeah, Paul Meese, Kentavi Bay. Um, we have the privilege of having the first fully digital private hospital in Australia at St Stephen's. Um, and the success story there is still juries out. Um, I'm, I'm always reminded of a little saying that they beware the carpenter with the new hammer because <laughs> everything looks like a nail. Um, and I'm, I would just make a comment and I'll ask the panel a question. I'm very excited about the topic shifting from population to personal health care, but not from a scientific point of view or a digital health point of view, but from an ethical point of view. And I think the thrust of choosing wisely is trying to move the discussion about health care down to that doctor, patient or health professional patient level, where the doctor and the patient discuss health care on a personal level. To me, an example of that is when a woman chooses to not have her breasts screened because she's assessed the evidence and she makes a personal decision and then she doesn't get vilified. To me, that is moving from population to personal health care where the citizen is empowered with quality information to make choices and as Leanne would like these words, patient preferences, expectations and um, uh, this personal situation. So I'm very excited about this topic from an ethical point of view, not a scientific point of view, because at the end of the day, it's all about the care. My question to the panel about, we've focused a little bit on digital, the digital revolution. I don't think that's going to solve the ethical problem. But can we have some examples of where the digital has actually genuinely helped 
not will help. We have lots of, lots of people saying, and it happened at the AMA conference last weekend, and it happened in other forums, the computer, the EMR, the e-health record will do this and will do that. But where is our evidence on the ground that the EMR, the digital health records overseas, uh, electronic records in hospitals, have actually made care more efficient and effective? Do we have a concrete example, particularly with the ethics in mind, and perhaps dignity of patient as well? I could give one example which is not necessarily personally directed, but a lot of the big electronic medical records are gathering data to answer questions about care. Um, so questions that you used to have to set up a big trial to run, now you can do a database dredge and ask a question and try and get a sense of what is the best treatments for a population. Might not tell you for that person, but there are quite a few research projects out there that say this is how you would respond uh, for those people. And again, the future is in the future. What they hope to do is have those easily customizable so that you can answer that for a person in front of you if you had a complicated patient. Um, examples of improving workflow. Um, I think the Op Open Notes project in Boston is a clear example of improving patient satisfaction and compliance with treatments. There is research uh, to show that that works. Um, about the burnout and workflow efficiencies, I think you're right, the jury's out. But Open Notes it does seem to empower patients into their care. Okay, some good examples there. Any others? Look, I mean, I think, uh, I think the, the really good examples are when they're integrated with other aspects of care. So, for example, we're doing point of care testing for infliximab in patients who have, have Crohn's. And, and the advantage of that is that you can then, you know, test on the day they arrive, change their dose and get a better dose and therefore, and that's showing better outcomes in their disease. The real issue though is when that gets integrated with everything else and so we have systems now with our inflammatory bowel clinic where there will be information that will flag when patients are started on a medication to actually do a test to measure their uh, TPMT. But what's interesting, the only benefit that really, the big benefit was when that also resulted in telephone follow-up. Mm. After the patient was commenced on the dose, Following up a week later, are you taking the medication? How's your symptoms? So when it gets integrated with a, with a, with a, as a component or as a tool of part of a, a redesigned um, um, clinical service, then you see the benefits. So I think we're yet to see the benefits in isolation of just looking at the technology. I think where we'll see it is where we integrate the technology really well with a much better designed um, process of care, and that's where we've seen the benefits. Okay, look, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, um, the morning has whizzed by and we're going to have to leave this panel uh, discussion here, but it's been fascinating. Would you please thank Matthew, Leanne and Michael.